May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be an acceptable offering in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Amen. Stories are powerful. Without our even being aware, simply listening to stories can transform our lives. In the mid to late 1990s, I worked as a therapist for a community mental health center in Tennessee. One of my job responsibilities was the supervision of a therapeutic foster group, foster care group, wherein I provided support to both foster children and their foster parents. A little boy named Justin, about seven years old, came to live in one of our foster homes. He had experienced multiple placements and had disrupted every one of them with poor behavior that frustrated foster parents to the point that they would ask him to be removed from their homes and placed somewhere else. We finally placed him with one of our more experienced foster mothers with a long history of success with challenging children. Justin did all right for a while and seemed to like his foster mother a lot. Just when things were going smoothly and I felt we were there, however, he began to act out frequently becoming hostile and angry, breaking dishes, destroying furniture, running away, and even once starting a fire. His foster mother, however, was unflappable and always responded to him firmly, but steadfastly and calmly. It seemed the more persistent and dedicated she was, the more volatile and disruptive he would become. I would see Justin once a week in therapy, sometimes more frequently. As part of our therapy sessions, I gave him the opportunity to choose from a book of stories that I would read out loud to him. The stories were therapeutic stories designed to reframe disruptive patterns of thoughts that children might have developed without their even knowing what I was doing. I always allowed Justin to choose which story he wanted to hear, and he always picked the same one. Tommy the horse comes home. Tommy was a horse who had lived on many farms. He was an ill-behaved horse, always kicking his farmer caregiver, and always trying to run away. You can see the parallels, I hope. He wouldn't let anyone ride him and always tried to buck the riders off his back. The truth of the matter is that when Tommy was younger, he was ill-treated by his first owner. He was beaten, was not fed properly, and never was he groomed. This also was part of Justin's story. Tommy came to live with Farmer Brown who was determined to take care of him. He always fed Tommy on a schedule so that Tommy could count on being fed. He groomed him and lovingly brushed his mane and coat, crooning to him all the while. 
Whenever Farmer Brown approached Tommy the horse, he always talked soothingly, and he never, ever hit him. At first, Tommy the horse responded to this kind treatment by being mean to the farmer. He was testing him. He didn't think at first that he could trust the farmer, and all he had to do was be mean and violent enough, and then Farmer Brown would get rid of him like all the other previous farmers. But this never happened. It seemed the more Tommy misbehaved, the more the farmer responded calmly and with love and kindness, often offering apples and sugar cubes while humming to him softly. Days passed, and then weeks, and then months. Tommy the horse calmed down. And most importantly, <coughs> Farmer Brown had not sent him away. And one day, Tommy the horse realized that he was home. Justin loved this story, and I read it to him every week for weeks and then months. His foster mother started reading it to him as home, at home as well, and she continued to be present to him with love and kindness, just as Farmer Brown had been present to Tommy the horse. Justin's disruptive behavior began to calm down and then finally disappeared. Two years after his arrival in the foster home, the family adopted him. Justin was home. Stories are powerful and can transform lives. <clears throat> now Jesus, our Lord, is known for telling stories, isn't he? In the telling of parables, he reshapes the thoughts of those who listens to him and transforms their lives. In the living of his life also, he tells a story and completely reframes the world of those who follow him. In today's gospel story, Jesus completely reshapes the story of what it means to be a king and live in a kingdom shaped by restoration, mercy, and salvation. The kingdom that he characterizes is not like the kingdom that the people of Israel were expecting. Now you see, up until the time of the Babylonian exile around the 6th century before the Common Era, the Jewish people believed, as many of us do today, in what's called retributive justice, tit for tat, we might say, an eye for an eye, you kill somebody, you should die. Retributive justice in that day and in our day goes something like this. You make a mistake, you get punished. As a result of the punishment, you have a conversion of life, and then possibly you get offered consolation and salvation. <clears throat> that has worked pretty well, hasn't it? Most people accept that logic to this day because it makes God and the world feel fair and just. Reward and retribution are in our hardwiring. They are the plot line for almost everything. They were operative in the stories of Tommy the horse and Justin the foster child. Except 
In the evolving biblical story, in our story of salvation, things began to change, starting with the Torah and going through the prophets, all the way through the birth, death, and resurrection of Christ. Often in those early stories of retribution, if one makes a mistake, one faces God's judgment and then hopefully converts to a better way of life. That's retributive justice. But during and after the exile, the prophets started seeing and sensing clearly a different pattern that was at work in God's dealings with his people. The new pattern looks like this. You make a mistake, you are offered love and consolation and salvation, and then you have a conversion of life. It's a total turnaround of our consciousness, isn't it? As Isaiah is able to hear from God, the shame of your youth you shall forget. My love shall never fall away from you. It seems that inside the divine logic, the answer to failure is in fact more love. And that was the idea in the story about Tommy the horse and his relationship with Farmer Brown. No matter how poorly Tommy acted, he was always given love and consolation and consistency, and he changed. In the story of Justin and his foster mother, no matter how poorly he acted, he was given love and boundaries and firmness and consistency. And in both of these stories, no one could be so bad that that person or that horse would ultimately and permanently be rejected. That is restorative justice. Do you see the difference in these two types of stories? In stories of retributive justice, the belief is that people will change if they are punished. That's what undergirds our criminal justice system. In the stories of restorative justice, the, people is, the belief is that people will change in response to love. Now, I'm not talking about love without boundaries. We do need to have those. Divine love is the interpretive key to everything. You see, unloved people do bad things, and loved people do good things. It's that simple. And that's why it's so important to love our enemies and to love those who are different from us. Because if we extend that kind of love and mercy, that's what opens the kingdom. And that's what draws people in. And that's what makes them become the kind of people we can love naturally. In our gospel lesson today, which type of story is Jesus modeling for us? What type of justice characterizes the kingdom of Christ the King, which we celebrate today? Can you think of a situation in your own life where you got something far better than you asked for or even deserved? The story I'm about to tell you is one I'm fond of telling, so forgive me if you've heard it from me more than once but it very beautifully illustrates the point I'm trying to make today. And it's a good story, and I had a homiletics professor tell me one time, don't ever fear to repeat a good story. 
So on the day that Tom and I got married in 1982, I was looking forward to a honeymoon on Hilton Head Island in South Carolina. Instead, as we drove away from the church, and notice Tom waited until that point to tell me this. As we drove away from the church after our wedding, Tom explained that we would not be going to Hilton Head, but we would be heading straight to our new home in Louisiana. The reason for this change of plans, he explained, is that the money that we had allotted to pay for our honeymoon was no longer available. Apparently, Tom had used the money a couple of nights before to bail half of the groomsmen out of jail <laughs> the night of the bachelor's party. While I don't completely understand what happened, I do understand that alcohol was involved, as <laughs> frequently it is in those sorts of things. And it seems that one of the other activities of the bachelor's party involved train jumping in Augusta, Georgia. And apparently, train jumping in Augusta, Georgia, and most other places, is illegal. And so some folks were arrested. Our honeymoon would have to wait until the groomsmen paid Tom back. Now, you'll have to understand that this was back in the day when young people didn't have credit cards, and we didn't have them, except maybe a Texaco gas card or something like that. So we couldn't just charge a honeymoon. We were going to have to wait for the cash. So, instead of going to Hilton Head, we began to make our way to Louisiana. Tom decided, I think trying to mend some bridges, that it would be fun to spend our wedding night in Atlanta, Georgia. They had just finished building the Peachtree Hotel, and at the time it was the largest and most spectacular hotel in Atlanta. Tom thought we might just have enough cash to spend one night there. So in our Toyota Corolla laden down with wedding gifts, we pulled up to check in. It turns out that the rooms were far more expensive than we had bargained for. We didn't have enough cash. We did have some checks, however, that had been given to us that day as wedding gifts, and we were willing to endorse those to pay for the room. As Tom was trying to explain to the hotel clerk that we had just gotten married and had all of these checks, her whole demeanor changed. Her face lit up with a smile, and she literally began jumping up and down as she exuberantly exclaimed, You just got married! Well, that changes everything. We have quite the special for newlyweds. We're going to upgrade your room to our honeymoon suite. We're going to give you a bottle of champagne. You will dine for free tonight in our restaurant. And the whole package will cost you less than half of the cash that you currently have in hand. We were flabbergasted. We had made one request to be allowed special accommodations as to how we would pay for our very expensive room. And instead, we were granted far more than we expected or imagined. The mercy of that hotel clerk, I will never forget. She basically saved our wedding night and perhaps even our marriage. <laughs> <laughs> this kind of thing is what confronts the thief on the cross in our story today. 
How odd that we would read about the crucifixion on the Sunday known as Christ the King Sunday. The person of royalty doesn't hang like a common criminal on a cross. That doesn't fit our idea of a king. A person of royalty doesn't pour himself out in service to others. We serve that person. A person of royalty isn't the type who would give to others more than they would ask for. A person of royalty doesn't interact with mercy and consolation. But Jesus did. The common criminal hanging next to Jesus recognizes him as a king and simply asks to be remembered by Jesus when he comes to his kingdom. And instead of promising simply to remember him, Jesus invites him to come with him into the kingdom that very day. Instead of being remembered through Christ's mercy, the thief will get to live the kingdom. Instead of being transformed by punishment and judgment, the thief is transformed by the mercy and love of Christ. He got far more than he expected or asked for or imagined. In the last words of today's gospel, Jesus says, Truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. Now I asked this question at staff meeting the other day, and I got some interesting answers. And the question is, to whom is Jesus actually speaking when he says this? Tradition tells us he is speaking to the repentant criminal. You will be with me today in paradise. But I find myself wondering. If the characteristic of this unlikely king is the extension of mercy, might it be possible that the you to whom Christ is speaking is everyone? I'm not suggesting some sort of universalism. We do need to recognize Christ as king. But I am suggesting that Christ the king is a king of mercy and that it is his will that all be welcomed into his kingdom. In our reading from the epistle to the Colossians, we are told that God has rescued us from the power of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son. Do we even completely understand what kind of power this gives us? God holds all things together in his power. He gives us first place in everything and especially in the fullness of himself, we have the power to transform everything. As we live in our world today, in our fragmented, polarized, divided, conflicted world, are we telling ourselves the story that we can transform everything? Are we telling the world the story that everything can be transformed? Or are we simply accepting the stories that exist on our evening news? In our opening collect this morning, we pray to the God whose will it is to restore all things in Christ, the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Are we telling ourselves the story of power and restoration that God wants us to hear? And are we telling us that story to the world? Which story influences you? By which story are you allowing yourself?
to be transformed. I've said these words to you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit.